You're listening to the So What Podcast. When we take the orthodox position that Jesus was fully human and fully divine, then we understand that he truly was tempted. And so we can look to that and and find the encouragement we need to come to him and say, Jesus, in the same way that you were tempted and resisted sin, help me by your spirit in this moment fight my sin. To me, that is the real danger of Apollinarianism. It robs Jesus of what the scriptures tell us he is. Hello and welcome to another episode of the So What Podcast, where we discuss theological and philosophical issues to ask that obvious question, so what? I'm your host, Kyle Bashirs, and I'm joined by our cast of contributors, Matt O'Reilly, Brad Mills, and Travis Buchanan. Well, we, the crew of So What Podcast, are happy to be back after a Christmas and New Year break to discuss, on this first of a two-part episode, Apollinaris and Apollinarianism. Before we head over to the discussion, again, we'd just like to thank you for listening to So What Podcast and for sharing it with your friends. If you enjoy the show, please help the podcast grow by rating and reviewing it in iTunes. You can find out more information about the show and its contributors at SoWhatPodcast.com. Questions about this and any future episodes can be submitted by emailing hello at SoWhatPodcast.com. You can keep up with the latest news by following us on Twitter at SoWhat underscore podcast or by liking our Facebook page. Just search for the So What Podcast. Let's head over to our discussion. So, gents, today we're going to talk about Apollinaris and Apollinarianism. This is not something that I think a lot of people may be aware of, uh, but it could be prevalent in the church today as a heresy that we see, something that people just slip into. So I think this would be an interesting discussion to have. You might say many people are unaware and yet susceptible. Susceptible to that is a good way to think about it. Uh, Brad, why don't you take it away? Who is Apollinarius, and what was his teaching? Well, um, Apollinarius was a bishop of Laodicea. He uh, was operating after the uh, first ecumenical council in Nicaea in 325, after uh, the orthodox view of Jesus' divinity won over over the Arians. And uh, so he's operating in this period where the church is still trying to articulate in a real precise way how the the man, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, was truly God. And he put forward this idea that the eternal Son of God, the divine Logos, took up residence inside of a human body. He emphasized the divinity of Jesus, as would be the case post-Nicaea, but in a way he he discounted his humanity. David Height, from the book that we kind of grabbed our series name from, calls this the God-in-a-bottle Jesus. I like to think of it as the uh, alien in that guy from Men in Black, Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you remember the movie. At the very end, there's that, the creepy guy's face opens up, and there's a little alien inside of his head with, like, levers and gears and stuff. 
And this little alien is articulating and moving and operating this human body. It looked like a human body, you know, to Will Smith and uh, and everyone else. But inside, it was actually just an alien sort of moving the gears. And Apollinaris' view of Jesus kind of is operating in the same way, that there's this uh, uh, a human skin suit that the divine person takes up residence in. So he was opposed down the road. He initially, and as, as we've seen with all these heretics, you know, their views are developed in ways that they may or may not have been in favor of by their followers. And so his followers, the Apollinarians, were uh, condemned at the Council of Constantinople in 381 as heretics. We got the uh, Niceno-Constantinople Creed that we're all familiar with that sort of articulated how Jesus uh, truly was 100% God and 100% man. So that's sort of a, a little rough sketch of Polinaris of Laodicea, and uh, I think it probably sets off our discussion. Yeah, that's interesting because you said that he was fighting Arianism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's, he is definitely uh, to be commended for his emphasis on the deity of Jesus. I mean, emphasizing that Jesus truly is God. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he's he's starting out uh, to defend orthodoxy. I've also read that he was buddies with Athanasius, somebody that we talked about before um, for a two-part episode earlier on when we were discussing Arius and, and Arianism, the idea that Jesus was a created being, uh, but that Apollinarius and Athanasius were actually contemporaries who were fighting another heresy side by side. I just think it's interesting to think about Apollinarius as beginning in squarely and safely within an orthodox camp, and yet he propagated an idea that pushed his followers outside of that circle. Yeah, it's like uh, a long time ago when Dave Kakish was on this podcast, he'd always talk to us about Luther's analogy of the man on a horse, uh, the drunk man on a the horse. drunk man, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you put him up on one side and he falls off on the other. And uh, church history, we see it over and over again that the pendulum often does swing mm -hmm. uh, from, from one end to the other, so... So we can we can emphasize that a truly orthodox and a truly high Christology embraces both the full deity of Christ and the full humanity of Christ without emphasizing one over the other. We, we have, to, have to sort of kind of go back and hold those things in ten, those two aspects of Jesus mm -hmm. being person in, in, in tension, in, not in ten, well intention, but balance also because it's difficult to. You know, we want to talk about him being God, and you know, we're it's easy to maybe underemphasize his humanity, and then we want to go back and talk about his humanity, and maybe we forget to mm -hmm. properly emphasize his deity. Yeah, I think many Christians are susceptible to the Apollinarian heresy um, because we are dealing with a mystery. You know, it it is it's baffling how the eternal God could take on flesh and become man. I mean, that is a that is a mystery. And I think over and over again, as we've dealt with these fourth century Christological heresies, we've seen that human language is ultimately inadequate, but right proclamation of the gospel and, and defending the, the faith handed to us uh, demands that we strive for precision. And so, um, yeah, I think that we always have to, you know, guard ourselves, but at the same time, try to be as precise as possible. I, th I think one reason we're, we're susceptible is because, and this may be the common experience of all of us on the, the podcast here, we pretty much grew up in an evangelical 90s and, you know, or early 2000s where evangelicalism is really responding to liberal Protestantism and the deny sort of the denial of the deity of Christ and the social gospel and the 
we're going to kind of bring Jesus down to our level. And you get a lot of the Jesus seminar kinds of folks who were going out there and sort of, the, 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 there was a big push in the 20th century, going back to the 19th century, away from the divine Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of came of age, I think, I did anyway, in an evangelicalism that was pushing back against that really firmly emphasizing the full deity of Christ. And in that pushing back, we neglected to properly emphasize the full humanity of Christ. And I think we're in a period now where you have some New Testament scholars and other folks coming along and we're sort of recovering or we, we have folks writing books on, on the humanity of Jesus and we're and trying to hold those two things in tension without denigrating the one or the other, the humanity and deity of Christ. So, Apollinarianism, fully God, kind of human. Kind of, sort of. This is who Jesus is. What's the big deal with that? Like, wh- what are the implications? It's just wrong, Kyle. It's just <laughs> wrong. <laughs> like, let's say, let's say I'm an Apollinarian. I don't want to be condemned as a heretic. Tell me why I should be. Well, I, I think the problem is it, it doesn't uh, jive well with the uh, biblical account of what we have and, and the apostolic testimony to the implications of the gospel. And one text that, for me, really puts rubber to the road is uh, found in Hebrews chapter 4. And it's one of my personal favorite passages. But um, in Hebrews 4, the, the preacher says, uh, We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if, if Jesus is, in the Apollinarian sense, a divine person inside of a human body, then when we look at the gospel account of his temptation uh, in the wilderness, and when we read sort of the implications of that temptation, not only there, but that he underwent his entire life, this what is meant to be an encouraging verse or an encouraging passage that Jesus is one who has been tempted in every way as we are, but remains sinless, and therefore he is a trustworthy and helpful aid to us when we are facing temptations ourselves. If he is not fully human in the Apollinarian account, then that loses its teeth altogether. Because it's like, you know, when when we look at our own lives and we see the sins that we're tempted with, uh, and we hear this passage, we're almost immediately thinking of objections because we know how difficult our fight with sin is. And so we think something maybe like, uh, well, of course Jesus never sinned. He's God. And it, it downplays the reality of his temptation and suffering, and therefore the awesome thing he did in living a life of perfect obedience. And so when we take the orthodox position that Jesus was fully human and fully divine— then we understand that he truly was tempted. He he was hungry. He was thirsty. You know, I don't know if you, if you guys have ever experienced just being outside on a, an incredibly hot day and not having uh, a bottle of water nearby, but you would almost do anything for a bottle of water. And Jesus is in the desert for 40 days, hungering and thirsting for real food and real drink. I mean, if we would do almost anything, we imagine that he's facing the same thing, and he has the ability to turn rocks into bread. And yet he didn't as an act of obedience to his father. 
And so we can look to that and, and find the encouragement we need to come to him and say, Jesus, in the same way that you were tempted and resisted sin, help me by your spirit in this moment, fight my sin, turn my back on it, and continue trusting my life to you. I, I mean, to me, that is, that is the real danger of Apollinarianism, is that it robs Jesus of what the scriptures tell us he is. Uh, an encouragement and a help to us in time of need. So what you're saying is Apollinarianism is splitting Jesus into two, essentially. Sure, he may have experienced temptation in the flesh. So with your example in the temptation of the wilderness, he got hungry, even though in obedience he should not eat because he's fasting. And yet the temptation in his mind didn't truly exist because he didn't have a, a mind because of Christ's spirit indwelling this body that would suffer that kind of temptation. And so he's right. sort of like a superhuman in that instance with one weakness, that being a body that is subject to being hungry during fasting and tempting his, his mind. I've, I've heard well, it it's interesting that you say superhuman because David Wilhite calls this heresy subhuman. I think that like the reality is it's not turning him into like a human like us, but with eternal, you know, abilities to resist sin, it's actually saying he's not like us very much at all. Uh, his flesh had no power over his thinking or over his emotions or anything like that. Mm. Um, but for us, we know that the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. So it, it denigrates his humanity. It makes him subhuman so that he's really not like us in very many ways at all. You may even say it's sort of like an actor in a play with a mask on, right? This is it's just sort of a a facade even. So along those lines, I, I would be inclined to say, I, I agree wholeheartedly that Jesus is fully human, but I would be inclined to say that not only is Jesus fully human, Jesus defines what it means to be truly human. So in, if we want to say, what does it mean to be truly human? If you want to know what that looks like, you read the gospels and you, and you look at Jesus and he shows us God's design for human life. Um, here's yeah. what God wants human beings to look like, to live like, to be, th this is it. This is the definition of it. And, and the pastoral side of that then is that human life wasn't created and designed by God for slavery to sin. Mm -hmm. yeah. We were made to embody God's holy, perfect love. We fail at that, but that's not the default human position. It is a, I, I would want to say that sin itself is a subhuman. It didn't, sin denigrates human life. Yeah. And Jesus shows us what the truly human life looks like, undenigrated and properly exalted. And he wants to do that in us. He wants to yeah. bring, conform us to his image, right? We're being conformed to the image of the Son of God. He wants to transform us into his likeness. He wants us to bear his image well and properly, and he gives us his grace. He, he unites us to himself in grace and gives us his spirit to enable us to do that increasingly so. Mm -hmm. Jesus gives us the power to become fully human, and that is brought to its climax uh, at his second coming when our bodies are raised from the dead. When we get raised from the dead, We'll be human like never before. A little longer, and you'd uh, you'd turn me into a Wesleyan. Well, if <laughs> if I need to continue, I can. Um, well, and and so, so let me let me let me respond. I, this is, I think, what my Wesleyan theology is. What got me to this place, though, right? Is as a, as a Methodist looking firmly in the larger Protestant tradition, looking at 
and engaging with my reformed friends and colleagues, I want to say that the vision of grace to restore human life is not what it should be. Is God's grace, it, it do, does sin denigrate human life and is God's grace sufficient to overcome that? And if it's not, we have to say that sin is bigger than grace. And Christ's or, was insufficient. Yeah, or, or Jesus or, is insufficient to mm-hmm. heal me. Is Jesus sufficient to heal me now? Is I think that's what I was going to say. Sufficient I to think heal me we and could, make me fully human. We could quibble on the timeline. Because I, I believe it is, and he will make me fully human. It just is going to wait until he returns or I die. Uh, it's, it's, it's waiting. That final overcoming and restoring work will be you know, will culminate so the, in glory, so the not, pro- not necessarily here. The problem with that is, is it doesn't really mesh with Paul, all right? Because, and that's, that's the, the key difference, the resurrection is where the outer body, with all of its infirmities and weaknesses and, you know, bones that break and eyes that are blind and, and all the things that go with that, are re- the outer person is fully restored to full human capacity of the resurrection presently though the inner person is being restored and and um so i would want to distinguish that between the inner person is our character our ethics Mm -hmm. our morality and the outer person is our embodiment not to divide i don't want to unnecessarily or un illegitimately divide those two things but i do want to but the distinction between the inner person the outer person is there in in second corinthians uh chapter five four and five yeah and and so you get paul in romans six saying you've been joined to christ in his death you will be joined to him in his resurrection therefore now in this moment stop sinning yeah and that's what it means to be human and he doesn't say you're going to struggle with this for the rest of your life and just sort of go on with it and it's just grin and bear and it's not going to be a very pleasant experience he actually says you have these arms and legs and members and pieces of your body stop using them for wickedness now and start using them for righteousness today. I just want to echo you and, and agree with you and say you're right because, I mean, even in Second Corinthians, he doesn't have, maybe it's not the imperative force, but there's the descriptive element where he says we all with unveiled faces are being transferred from one degree of glory to the next. There is an element in which we experience the eschatological glory even in the moment by the Spirit working in us through the Word. Yes, so, so I would want to say holiness is the inaugurated eschatology and the like holy holy character is god's is, is is it should be understood in terms of inaugurated eschatology in the present you should explain that term okay so inaugurated eschatology is a technical term a bit of jargon thanks travis um it's a way of saying es- you know, so eschatology has to do with the future uh, in the future jesus will return he'll raise our bodies from the dead um, he'll make all things new new creation will be brought to its consummation it will be completed decay uh, the world that is currently in bondage to decay will be set free uh, into the glorious liberty of the children of God that project has already been inaugurated it was inaugurated when Jesus came out of the tomb so the resurrection of Jesus is the inauguration of the new creation the resurrection of our bodies will be will come at the consummation uh, of the new creation the in-between time is a bit messy Right, it's kind of gray. There's an overlap, and that in-between time is a period where the since the project has been inaugurated and the Spirit of God has come to dwell in the bodies of believers, we are enabled by His grace 
to not submit our bodies to be instruments of wickedness, but to be submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and instruments for righteousness, Romans 6. The inner person, our, 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 our character, I'm more inclined to use the language of character than I am spirit or something like that because I don't want to be unnecessarily dualistic, right? So is my character being transformed to embody the character of the Lord Jesus Christ? And there's nothing that I can find that says that is supposed to not be full-on consistent presently, right? Romans 6, shall we continue in sin? Not once, not twice, three times, no way, no how. And if you think so, you don't know Jesus. Or you don't, I shouldn't say you don't know Jesus, but you haven't come to understand the full implications of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all that to say is holy human bodies is a present, and this is what I mean by holiness is inaugurated eschatology. Holy human bodies embodying the holy love of Jesus, holy human bodies in the present is a manifestation of what will come. So in the future, we'll have perfected physical bodies. In our glorification. Glorified physical bodies. We anticipate that in the present. In our sanctification. In our sanctification. Right. Yeah. 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 That's good. That's helpful. It is. And there's a couple things in there that we might could open up. Um, I don't have to, but the first thing is, uh, Matt, you keep using the the language and you, you're, you're careful to uh, not be overly dualistic. But thinking about Apollinaris and Apollinarianism, they are self-consciously operating from an understanding of the human person that willingly divides into two, if not three, distinguishable parts. So I don't know if that's something we want to talk about. Yeah, but so, yes. So that's part of the do. problem. Right? I mean, if you unhelpfully become either dichotomous or trichotomous, quadcotomous, I mean, whatever you want to be, right? Just... <laughs> Then you almost hippopotamus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the least hip hopopotamus. <laughs> my <laughs> rhymes are bottomless. <laughs> I'm out of my league here. Flight of the Concords. Um, Flight of the Concords yeah. reference. Anyway, if you uh, if you if you begin to subdivide humanity and you go too far, it it seems almost a necessity that you have to pick one subdivision and exalt it above the others as true human life. Right. Mm-hmm. So I remember a conversation. I had with at the time I was in seminary with another guy at a with a guy in a different seminary and he made the statement I am not my body right he expected his soul to be saved and to go to heaven and this and and, and his body was just sort of in it for the, this time period and but, but 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 his body for him did not constitute an essential part of his human identity and I would want to say no 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 you are your body and it is an essential part of your human identity and and if you sort of subdivide your anthropology into soul and spirit and body or spirit and body. And you do that in such a strong way, strongly dualistic, the tendency you're going to elevate one or one or the other. Mm -hmm. And so I like John Cooper is a philosopher. He uses the language of holistic dualism, which I find very helpful. And I would use that to describe my own view that we do have a non-physical part that is with Jesus in the intermediate state but our bodies are still essential to full human life. The resurrection is the climax of human life, not the intermediate state. Mm-hmm. So what? Why not think of Christ as Apollinaris did? 
Well, a major reason is that it makes the humanity of Christ something other than humanity. If Christ donned humanity to save us, then according to Apollinaris, he did so with only a human body. Christ's mind, his thoughts, feelings, reasoning were all still divine. If that was the case, then Christ was not truly like us, and he could not have been, as Hebrews says, tempted as we are in every way. Well, we hope you join us next time as we continue the conversation and focus on how Apollinarianism denigrates the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you.